Welcome to What Moves You, a Speedway Motors podcast for people who love cars. I'm Joe McCullough, and today, in our final episode of Season 1, we're talking to Dave Shutton. Some of you may know him from the long list of impeccably crafted cars that he's built, both on his own and for the Galpin Speed Shop. Others may know him from the Discovery Channel show Car Kings. Our own Jeff Carls joins us for a conversation about building cars on camera with crazy deadlines, a little show rod history, and what it's like to work on some of the most famous cars ever built. You run that the speed shop as though it were a hot rod shop where you take in customer work and bill by the hour. And Yeah, so this is sort of uh, a little special. It's not really open to the public. It's mm-hmm. more appointment only. Uh, high-end, you know, like celebrity-type customers, right. big builds. I don't do any fixing or repairing. I only do the whole build or nothing. Yeah. You're not, you're not installing vintage air on a 64 Mustang for <laughs> Joe Q God, public. No. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's lucky for you. That's a good, good setup to have. Yes. I love it. It's really cool. So how exactly did that situation come to be you working out there in that shop? Well, I guess it's been about 11, maybe almost 12 years ago now since Orbitron was found in Mexico, which is mm-hmm. the, long lost Ed Roth, crazy custom. And that was Bo uh, Bachman and I's first project together. He brought me here to restore Orbitron. And, you know, it was, it was really fun. It was a great project. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a great dude to work with. So, you know, after that was finished, I went back to Michigan and then he called and wanted me to come and help do a Mustang for SEMA, a 69 Mustang, which we, basically built live on the stage in three days mm-hmm. and uh, in front of everyone at SEMA, which was crazy. <laughs> so we did that. And at the time, you know, everything was kind of chaotic in Michigan. Uh, General Motors was really struggling and that's who I worked for. And right. my marriage was pretty rocky. And uh, I had the opportunity to just come here and do this. So I sort of just bailed. <laughs> as you sometimes have to do in life right yeah for sure and i mean it seems certainly seems like it's working out for the best i think so you know it's a lot of fun it's still a lot of work but you know i i can say that i haven't really went to work a day in 10 years because right. this is what i would be doing after work or in, in front of work or whatever you know this is this is all i've ever wanted to do yeah, it's kind of funny when those lines get blurred that way. It uh, it really does just, you know, everything kind of melts together and it's, this is just what I do. This is just what I do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's all I've ever, I mean, no matter where I was working or what job I had, there was always a custom car. There was always a hot rod. There was always a muscle car. I was always goofing around with some kind of car since I was a kid Mm -hmm. and it's, it's really never changed. So I have followed you on social media for quite a while now and paid attention to all the magazine articles and stuff. And it seems like you just crank out the cars and it makes me feel really (laughs) worth like, what did you do today? I made a cardboard template for a brake pedal bracket and, you know, Dave built an entire 34 coupe. How many hours a week do you work? Um, it depends. Uh, when we were filming the TV show, it was really gnarly. You know, my short days were 16s. Yeah. Uh, some of it just carried through and I 
sleep when I could. Right. Um, but you know, for me, once I say I'm going to do a thing, like then I become obsessive about it and I have to do it because I don't want to look bad. Yeah. So, um, a lot of times I put myself out there pretty good, you know, and say, yeah, I'll build that car in eight days. And <laughs> then I got to build a car in eight days. <laughs> I, I, the world I, is watching. <laughs> I saw in the exactly. show when you were in the middle of the thrash on the wishbone that there were pieces of the AMBR Roadster pickup scattered around too. It's like, oh man, mm-hmm. like doing both of those things, you know, to just build one AMBR Riddler car <laughs> is an all-consuming life-ending thing. And so to have uh, to do these additional things, I, I, I mean, that was impressive that you pulled it all off. Well, thank you. That was honestly, that was the hardest part was doing an AMBR car while building. So while that, while the wishbone was happening, I was actually doing five cars at the same time. And I was just juggling, you know, we were moving cars out of the shop so we could only see, you know, what we could see. And it was Mm -hmm. really gnarly, you know, (laughs) trying to pull all that off with, you know, pretty limited help. I mean, I really only had my buddy, John, Mm who, uh, you know, is a great dude and, and a master mechanic and a great fabricator welder, you know, but he has a family and he, he works like work hours. Right. And I, you know, like there's no weekends and I didn't leave my shop for like six months. (laughs) Yeah. I was wondering about that on the, as watching the show, we, when we do a project in our shop and we have one camera guy who stands there and he's, Hey, stop, you need to redo that. Cause I didn't get it. I was out of focus or whatever. <laughs> and it's just, it, I mean, it just made, it's just makes me furious. And so to have this like hard deadline and to have to deal with cameras, how did you handle that? Well, um, I did what they wanted while they were here and then I thrashed when uh, they were. Yeah. Right. And then they'd come in and be like, Oh, why didn't you do that? but it was the only way to hit the deadline yeah you know i would start working at like three or four in the morning and they would show up at seven and i'd already have half a day in Mm -hmm. and made a bunch of progress because i knew from seven to seven you know hardly anything was going to get done yeah (laughs) it has to be hard (laughs) <laughs> but it was it was you know it was a really rad experience i mm-hmm. hope we get to do it again i hope i get a little more time this time if we do um because some of the projects you know the, the wishbone was a really easy project in my world it was mm-hmm. you know hardly uh any work it was pretty brainless it was all there it just had to be pretty and right. correct so that was the easy part doing something like the ambr car that requires literally endless just thinking hours to try to come up with something that no one's ever seen or thought about or did this way or whatever. Yeah. That was the gnarly part because I always had to have that spinning around while I was doing everything else. Right. I'm a little curious about Galpin Ford itself. So I've always sort of understood it to be a little bit like, you know, Royal Pontiac or Nikki Chevrolet or whatever, where it was sort of a fa- legendary dealership. But I I don't understand the arrangement between the dealership itself and GAS and the speed shop and all of that. Well, uh, Galpin, you know, it started as Galpin Ford. And now, honestly, I, I want to say they're at about 15 or 16 different franchise names. Oh, geez. You know, as far as dealerships, you know, we just opened the... Uh, 
portion of Santa Clarita, which is about uh, 20 minutes north of here. Okay. Uh, we're getting ready to do something with Land Rover. We have all those different brands. But Galpin is the biggest volume Ford dealer in the world for 30 years really? or better. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy everywhere you go. Like I was just up by San Francisco over the weekend and I see Galpin plates cruising around everywhere. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, it's huge in California. And the thing that uh, Bo's father, Bert, always had the forethought to do was have customized cars on the lot for sale. Mm -hmm. Because who wants a stock car when you can have something with a Bill Carter paint job on it? Right. So you know, that was while Bo was growing up, that's all he saw were all these crazy painted vans and four by four trucks and all that stuff through the seventies and eighties mm -hmm. into the mini trucks with the splash paint jobs and all that stuff. Right. So he sort of took that and ran with it. And he started Galpin Auto Sports when they did Pimp My Ride. And oh, that was before oh. my time. Um, I had nothing to do with that show. <laughs> <Pretty clear. laughs> didn't, didn't do any of that. Um, and, you know, when I came here, it was Galpin Auto Sports. But then, you know, Bo and I both realized that what I do is very different from what they do. And my process is very, very different. And I, I need space. I need, you know, organization. I need to be not interrupted all the time. I, I really have to just focus. So um, I wasn't sure how it was going to work. And then, you know, we decided to do the speed shop and it's worked out great ever since I, I love working by myself with very little help. Um, it's a lot more work, but at least I have control of it. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's sort of the thing. It seems to me like a lot of the cars that you are associated with, or that I associate you with are show rods. I mean, that, that would be how you would describe them. What is it about, you know, the Roth, sort of show rod genre that that draws you in and makes you want to do that kind of car well i actually went to school to be an artist oh, okay so uh i think it's just the fact that they're more like drivable sculptures you know there's only one of each one which you know is in my world i guess it's a great responsibility when you're responsible for restoring the one thing the way it's supposed to be mm -hmm. And there's nothing else to compare it to, you know, so it's, I love that. I love the challenge of, you know, having to source out all this crazy stuff that they haven't built for 50, 60, 70 years. Right. Uh, and I think that was it. And, you know, I grew up going to the indoor car shows as a kid. And of course there were hot wheels and there were model kits and that's all they were, were little versions of the real crazy cars. So yeah, that's, that's probably how it happened. Yeah, the first model kit I ever built was the outlaw. Well, my dad built it and I watched because it was the Revell kit and there were too many little pieces, but. Awesome. I, I actually think... have the mold for the outlaw up there on a shelf. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We, we got that from, uh, yeah, uh, the world's first fiberglass car mold, literally. Um, Robert Williams saved that from the trash and uh, we got it from him a, a number of years ago. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> That was actually, you make a point, and that was something that I wanted to ask you about. You know, when I am tearing into a car where 
it's one of however many thousand 69 Camaros they made, and I'm about to take a cutoff wheel to it. I still feel a little like, man, I could actually screw this up. And what if I screw it up? What am I going to do? Well, you just buy a, another quarter panel and we'll just we'll just try again. How do you handle that responsibility of cutting into these cars that are one of one that were touched by some of the most legendary hands in the world? Not not to uh, apply pressure to you here. But. <laughs> yeah, you you do it with you know you approach it with respect. And the the biggest, the most important thing to restoring those kind of cars for me is doing it to today's standards. Because people look at cars differently now than they did fifty years ago. But you can't remove any of their fingerprints. So if they right. made a mistake or something's off, you have to leave it. You can make it as good as it can be. But that's the way it was done. And you gotta you gotta know the difference. You know, when I restored Roth's shop truck, it was so hilarious because see, he bought this truck, it was brand new, it was that mint green fifty six F one hundred. And he, you know, proceeded to right away repaint it and frame it and stripe it and letter it and do all the stuff that he did to it. Well, Underneath all that, it was just a stock truck. And when we drug it out of the barn in Oklahoma and got it here and I started taking it apart, I realized that he got that truck brand new and he just taped it off and, and sprayed it. So <laughs> so it's still like only, mint, mint in the jams right, and stuff? <laughs> everywhere. in the, the jams were painted, but in between the box and the cab and under the hood and inside the bed, that was all still mint green. So when I restored it, I painted it back to a brand new original running driving truck and taped it all off and painted it white and flamed it. And I let all the overspray go everywhere, you know, where it was when I took it apart Mm -hmm. and I took it to grand national roadster show. And it was right in the front of the biggest building there in building four and like it's set up day. And I'm talking with Brizio and all these people, you know, and everybody loves it. And then there's people that are like, he couldn't even undercoat under the wheel wells? Like, what's wrong with it? <laughs> so in my world, that was hilarious. You know, like, you either get how hard that was or you totally miss it. And and I build for the people to get Mm-hmm. I want to talk about, you You mentioned the Orbitron, and, you know, that story's been told and retold a million times, but it's such a great story. It's possible that there are people who are listening that don't know it. You know, you go, you guys were right there in the middle of all that. What happened with the Orbitron? So Orbitron had a really weird life. And in order to tell it properly, we got to go back to when Roth built it. He had just finished the Mysterian, and that, which was a huge hit mm-hmm. because it was so crazy with the two engines and super spacey, whatever. So we had this idea to build a futuristic slingshot dragster, which is what Orbitron is. Right. And uh, Ed Newton designed it. It was his, uh, one of his first, actually, I think that was his first project for Roth. And if he would have built it the way Ed drew it, it probably would have been a hit. But because of the fact that everything was covered up, it had a right. whole chrome chassis, everything, but you couldn't see any of it. It wasn't a hot rod in people's minds. They'd already seen cars with bubbles on them. So it didn't have the big hit that Roth thought it would. Mm-hmm. He blamed it on the Beatles. He said the Beatles showed up and <laughs> nobody built models. They all went and bought guitars. So that was his story. But the fact was, it just didn't look like any of his other cars. So 
it was almost immediately sold to Daryl Starbird in Oklahoma. And he changed it slightly with the paint and toured it for a little bit. And I think he sold it for $800. Oh, geez. And somehow or another, it ended up in El Paso. And a kid had this car. He actually tried to drive it to school, <laughs> which, which would have been a lot of work to make it actually do that. And the battery died because it didn't have a charging system. And he got trapped in the bubble, so he kicked the bubble out. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and then they tried to tow the car, and they ripped the whole front end off of it. And from there, it ended up going to Mexico somehow into Juarez. And it apparently spent some time in a carnival <laughs> because there was all these different weird layers of super chunky metal flake, red and green and blue and all this stuff. Um, and somehow over all these, you know, this is over 50 years, it ended up being used as a dumpster in the most dangerous city in the world. <laughs> wow. Um, and the owner is convinced that his uncle built this custom dune buggy himself. And it was very sentimental oh, to him. I see. And, uh, our friend, Michael Lightborn was able to get it away from him and drag it back across the border. And that's where we came in. Was Bo looking for it, or did somebody find it and then tell him that it had turned up? I think we were all looking for it. Okay. Um, you know, some of some of uh, friends of mine had even taken out ads in certain magazines saying, "If you've ever seen this, you know, blah blah blah." But uh, Michael Michael finds some great stuff, and that's all he's done for forty years is yeah. find great stuff. So, you know. He's the best at it. And you did both the milk truck and the ice truck, right? Correct, yes. And how how did those turn up? Well, it's funny. The ice truck, I was a little naive back then. And, you know, this is going on 15, 18 years ago yeah. now. And all I had that rod and custom cover with the Ed Newton rendering. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it was a real car. So I was going to build it. Oh. And one day, Blackie Jijian called me and said, well, are you still going to build that? Whatever. And I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, what if you can just buy it? <laughs> and uh, apparently, uh, there was a guy named Sal Saldivar, who was a lowrider dude in Fresno that had it and was making a rat rod out of it. So I liberated it from... Fresno and uh, Blackie did, I should say. I sent him the money. He paid for it, and he shipped it back to Michigan for me, and and I restored it back there. And about the time that landed, the milk truck was found in Canada, and a friend of mine bought it, and I restored that for him. And the milk truck was the first one that was sort of traditional hot rod underpinnings, and then the ice truck was the wacky one, right, with all the crazy... The ice truck uh, was so far ahead of its time. Yeah. Really is what spun me out about that is the Indy car suspension, the giant Indy tires, the, I mean, it's literally an inch off the ground. It's horrible to transport, but it sure looks cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, the milk truck though, you know, Dan Woods talking about people that were ahead of their time. He built that truck when he was 15 years old in wood shop in high school. <laughs> and built the rest of it in his mom's driveway. Yeah. Kids, 15 year old kids now can barely dress themselves. 
That is one thing that I find humbling. You know, I have a small garage with a project going on in it. And, you know, I, I, well, if my garage was just bigger and if I had better tools and whatever, and then you look at, you know, some of the best, most influential hot rods of all time were building driveways and backyards and chicken coops. And, you know, I have to remind myself of that from time to time. Yeah, I built a lot of rad cars in my little one called one stall garage, you know, back in Michigan as a as a kid. You know, that's how it all starts. It's always evolving. There's never enough space. There's never enough cars. There's never enough tools. But you deal with what you have. Yeah. Oh, and you didn't know any better. So if you didn't have somebody there telling you that you couldn't do it, well, why the hell can I do it? I can do that. <laughs> I got a picture in my head. I'm going to make it real. When I was a teenager, I was building a, maybe just, maybe I was in my early 20s. I was building a, 64 Dodge A100 pickup. And uh, I put a big block Chevy in the middle of it, kind of like a little red wagon, but not a Hemi. Mm -hmm. And it did wheelies. It was all tubbed and it was stupid. And I needed to make, I needed a roll pan for the back because I hated the bumper. And I went over to my buddy's place, this old dude that I had I've known, Dan Turner, since I was a little kid. And I was a little kid bugging him when he was building stuff. And he goes, well, just make it. <laughs> and I go, well, I can't make that. He goes, well, of course you can make that. Go make it. So I went home and made it. And I sort of never looked back. So what is, how did it all start for you? I mean, that's a pretty obvious question, but I, I mean, did, what, when did the bug first bite that sort of set you down this path? I was really little. Um, I have loved cars since I was a toddler. I've been taking things apart and making them since I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in a little town, uh, outside of Detroit, about two blocks from a scrapyard. My dad actually ran a service station on Woodward back in the, in the sixties, like during the Detroit riots and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he was always into cars, but not so much when I started getting into cars. So I really blame, you know, the indoor car shows and hot rods, uh, with hot wheels and model kits as the biggest influence. And then once I started actually doing stuff, I think I built my first car, which was actually a demolition derby car for my dad when I was 12, <laughs> 12 or 13. I don't really remember, but it was a lot of fun because I got to use a cutting torch for the first time uh, that a neighbor had and I borrowed. My very first car was a 71 Impala four-door that I had for about a week before I pulled the engine out and put it in a two-door 77. Mm -hmm. And I had that for a couple of months and ended up in a 66 Impala Super Sport, which I consider my first car because I drove that car for years. Mm -hmm. I've probably had 10 of them over the years. They're just a rad car, big block, four speed, a lot of fun. Yeah. And then you were working for GM and building hot rods at home prior to going to California. Yep. I always, I had a big shop in my backyard in Michigan. I was mm -hmm. a tool maker for General Motors. I was there for Almost 17 years, I think. Okay. Do you have a favorite of all of the cars that you've built or restored or had your hands on? Is there one that stands out above the rest in your mind? I think Iron Orchid, the 34 5 window, is my favorite car that I've, that I've built. Did you conceptualize that thing on your own? Was that, was that your own idea? Yeah, when I moved here, I brought that car with me. I drug it out of a basement in Michigan. I kind of needed to sell it to help pay for the divorce. Uh -huh. So I sold it to Bo, but with the premise of 
I want to build the car the way I've always seen it in my head. Mm -hmm. And then he said, okay, I have two requirements. One, it had to be Ford powered because I was always going to put a Hemi in it. Oh yeah. And, uh, and then he wanted to take it up uh, a couple notches and do it for the Riddler. So that's how that happened. And it was the longest build I've ever done. It took about 14 months. Uh huh. Um, almost everything from scratch, the whole chassis, most of the suspension, everything. That is such a great car. And I think that that's the car. That's probably when I sort of first understood who you were was, was that car, you know, it got a lot of ink, but Mm -hmm. the shop that I was working at at the time, the the owners went to Detroit that year that you sort of debuted it there. And okay. they came back and they didn't want to talk about the Riddler. They didn't want to talk about any of the other stuff that happened. They're like, man, you should have seen this coupe. And like, you know, pulling their phone out to show me pictures of it. They said, it's just glow. It was glowing under the lights. It was like a beacon in the middle of the room. Yeah. yeah the ink that car got does no justice to seeing it, seeing it in person. I, th- I think the first time I saw that car in person was at the hot rod homecoming uh, show that okay. was in California. And mm-hmm. yeah, th- th- actually what drew me over, I think was when you guys were setting it up that, that, that thing sounds amazing too. The, the <laughs> it's just it's raw. A, it's gnarly. I mean, it, it's got a 14 and a half to one side oiler 427 in it. <laughs> um, with a Mickey Thompson cross Ram, uh, race Hemi, Holly carbs. It literally, my, my goal for that car was to build the most, the fattest car you could build in 1964 mm-hmm. and there's not one part on that car that's a day over that yeah it's def- definitely angry and that was what drew me in i'm like oh that's that because i'd seen some coverage on the car before that and i'm like holy cow that it's like that's the real deal that thing sounds as wicked as it looks and the display every everything went together the display you know with all the you know the plating on the car and the pearl white naga hide in the display and stuff just bowled me over. Yeah, that was, that's an amazing build. Awesome. Thank you. That's yeah. That'll always, that will probably always be my favorite because I think that was the only time I've ever been completely set free to just do what was in my head and nothing else was a factor. Although it'll probably never happen again because that was really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and you, did you do the paint on that car too? No, actually I was terrified to do the paint on that one because it had to be perfect uh-huh. for the Riddler. So I had Daryl Hollenbeck do the paint, oh, okay. who is, you know, one of the best in the country. Um, funny story. I had it at Detroit and it was all set up. I threw the cover over it and I had bailed to the hotel. And then I get a text from Daryl. Apparently uh, Chip Foose and uh, Charlie Hutton had uncovered the car dumped a bunch of compound on the hood and grabbed the buffer and were like posing that they were buffing the paint oh, out no. in the middle of the night. So it was hilarious. I laughed so hard um, <laughs> after I had a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was wondering about that in the show when you have to ship the cars to Japan and they go into the container I'm like, Oh man, I'm, you know, I have a $4,000 C10 truck that I don't think I would do that with, you know? <laughs> I, uh, well, the first time was the scariest, which was Orchid, actually. Oh, geez. And, uh, and my friends, like, as soon as it left, they started sending me all the videos of the containers falling into the ocean and all that stuff. So 
uh, but it made it. And I've shipped uh, one, two, three, four, five, I think five or six, seven cars back and forth over the years now. Yeah. And I've never had a problem. You know, Shige and the Moon guys, they take such great care of everything. And honestly, we could, as a country, learn a million things of how to be better from Japan, but car shows could literally learn everything. Uh, yeah. That's the most amazingly organized, put together, handled thing I've ever been to. It's completely painless. There's no waiting. There's like, there's no line. Everybody's polite. It's just over. And they do it all. They set it up in like eight hours. They have a party on Saturday night. The show opens Sunday at eight. And by five, it's empty and clean. And there's not a scrap of paper on the floor. And it's, it's just ridiculous. It takes you a day to just get out of Grand National. Yeah. I have always wanted to go to the Yokohama Moon Eyes. And it's it's amazing to me how you know you when AMBR or when when the Roadster show is going on and when the Father's Day show is going on and when the Autorama is going on you know your social feed blows up with everybody's show coverage but then Yokohama it almost seems like it's bigger than all the rest somehow like and I don't know how that is being a million miles away yet somehow it takes on sort of the same level of coverage as SEMA or one of the big shows here it, you know it brings people from literally all over the world. I mean, I meet people and I've made great friends with people from, you know, probably 50 other countries. It's just, yeah. it's insane in the amount of people that attend and how amazing everyone is. And, you know, just respectful. Like I sit at the show, you know, and I'm like signing some stuff or giving away t-shirts, whatever. And my phone and my wallet, it's just sitting on the table <laughs> and like nobody, it's just respect. You know, I couldn't do that here. Yeah. Um, it's really, really far and above my favorite show that I've ever been to. It'll always be, and I go just to go, whether I have a car or not. I, I want to go back to the, you you mentioned the making the roll pan for your truck and the, the, your friend telling you to just, well, why don't you just make the thing? Do you have advice for somebody who's listening to this that is just starting out just getting started has a rusty heap in their driveway and they don't know don't know what to do what, what would you tell them learn by doing just do it i mean we all failed we at some point we've all like i remember when i first learned how to do i i shouldn't even say that i, I didn't learn how to do body work i was trying to do body work <laughs> and i was driving i was putting mud on with a one inch putty knife you know and <laughs> And using my dad's black and decker, black and decker jitterbug, you know, oh, right. and yeah. like, you know, we, you only, the only good way to know is to do it. Don't be afraid to just try. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certain things that I would tell people to learn first and, and that's brakes and steering. Everything else is okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just do it, figure it out. So what comes next for, for you, for the shop? What what's the next big thing, or can you not tell us? Um, you know, I don't know. Like right now, I'm I've got one, two, three, four projects going. Uh, over my shoulder is a '57 Caddy Burritz convertible <laughs> that I'm turning into a Brome convertible, which they never made. Okay. For a doctor friend of mine in El Paso, I have two. 55 T-Birds going. Uh, one is the chassis on the table behind me. And uh, that's getting a Latham blown 427 and a five speed oh, that's on a cool. tube chassis. 
The other one is a blown coyote with a six speed on a, a roadster shop chassis. In a T bird? Very cool. 55 T bird. That yeah. sounds tight. Yeah, a little, but <laughs> it's in there. <laughs> um, and then one of the funnest things I've got to do in years, actually, is this this van project for Titmouse Studios in uh, Hollywood. They're building a new studio in Burbank, and they asked me if I could take a 70s van, cut the sides off, and then completely customize them into two different vans. And they wanted to hang these on the walls in their lobby of their new animation studio and have the <laughs> doors lead to secret rooms. Oh, <laughs> of course. Why not? Yeah. So one is like super OG lowrider. Mm-hmm. Like it's four and a half feet. No, it's five feet even on the ground. <laughs> uh, wedge chopped eight and a half and five and a half. Uh, shortened about two feet. Um, on little baby uh, white walls with Kregers and yeah. super crazy paint. The other one is like what you would really think of as a 70s custom van. Right. But since it's an animation studio, they wanted things to be a little more crazy. So it has two small block Chevy sticking out the side of it and oh, all these crazy pipes going everywhere. And the cool factor is that the pipes, uh, each they each end up with four pipes somehow. Mm-hmm. One is eight into four. The other one is one into four. And then they end up going up the walls and across the ceiling and becoming the lighting chandelier. Oh, oh cool. All eight of them come together over the reception desk. That is awesome. That sounds like so a lot it's of been a dream. Yeah. It's super rad. It's, it's a, it's a ton of fun and it's all artsy, you know, it, it doesn't have to start or stop. So yeah. it, takes the uh the not fun parts of it away or the messy parts I yeah I, i'm not gonna lie i saw that on your instagram the the raked slicks site and i thought that you were actually building the thing I'm like oh man that is gonna be so killer <laughs> i'm like oh no it's just half oh, okay well it's still cool <laughs> well now we're talking about building a drivable one for them to have you know to like they can like share custody of it the two owners on the weekends yeah. and and rock it because it would be a great tool as far as promotions oh, and yeah. even to have that just sitting outside when you pulled up to the studio would be super rad um so i'm hopeful that we can do that at some point but right now it's just a really fun art project yeah and that's something else that i wanted to ask you about i you know the, i grew up i'm of the generation where those vans were what you know, the plumber drove and they're what, exactly. you know, if your, your friend's sketchy dad drove and so, <laughs> I resemble that remark, <laughs> <laughs> but, but now they're cool. And it's just sort of an example of, of the, you know, the, the idea that the cars that we consider cool are constantly getting older, you know, and right. do you have a feeling for what, like what comes next? You know, the, the, there's hot rods, there's muscle cars. What is the next thing that like all the kids are going to be doing? Well, as far as what the kids are going to be doing, I don't know. Cause all the things they're doing now, they look broken with the tires like this. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks like yeah. somebody stepped on them. Um, <laughs> but I don't, you know, like I see the 70 stuff coming back really hard. You know, recently I restored a 72 Buick uh, Riviera to mm-hmm. like, day one of assembly line, you know, oh, yeah. uh, 
I see it. I see those because I think the '60s cars, a, they're getting too expensive, mm-hmm. and they're getting harder to find. In you know the '50s and all that stuff in the '30s, the average person can't go buy a '32 Ford now, a real one. I mean, it's right. it's ridiculous what the buy-in is to just get right. started. So, uh, I think the '70s stuff is is coming coming in pretty hard, actually. Hopefully, we're not going to see anybody restoring like Cavaliers. And, yeah. I don't know any of them that'll have enough left to restore. That's that's the <laughs> right? I, you, you run into that that kind of breaking point at some time in the the early to mid '80s where the durability of the vehicles just isn't there for there to be anything left to to really do anything with, too. Totally, uh, but I think all the late '70s stuff and even the early '80s, like the early Hearst Olds, there in mm-hmm. the early '80s. Things like that, I believe, will always be sort of popular because they all had their little fun things like the lightning rods mm-hmm. or whatever that make them pretty cool, even though I don't know if I would want one, but it'd be fun to play with, you know, yeah. at some point. I've been waiting for that to happen for a long time. My first car was an 86 Regal and I've got made fun of in high school, but I've been sitting on it ever since waiting for it to be cool again so I can show my face again. <laughs> I... uh I remember those well in, in the, the Grand Nationals. I actually had a – one of the first things I bought when I started working for General Motors, instead of doing something intelligent, I went and bought a GMC Cyclone. Oh, yeah. And we uh, – I raced a lot of Grand Nationals and a lot of vets. Man, that little truck was so much fun. There were <laughs> love turbo to have four threes, right? Yes, turbo four three all wheel drive. Oh jeez, yeah. yeah. And the traction was the total difference there. Like because you could hundred percent. Yeah, my uncle has still has one of those cyclones. Actually, he bought fairly new, and that yeah, <laughs> talk about uh, yeah, a ton of fun in a little package because that it's Lately, it's the Grand National with traction. <laughs> right. Lately, I've had this this really cool idea of, I mean, it's probably been done, but like taking one of those little trucks and doing like a blown LS instead of the turbo six. Oh yeah. And I feel like that would be just a little death trap, but it would be so (laughs) much fun. See, that's what I've got designs on your, your Regal Joe is to do a T type, (laughs) but with a twin turbo LS, I mean, just speak softly, carry a big stick, still, you know, still charcoal gray with a little bump on the hood, like the grand national had. I have, it, it keeps me up at night thinking about, you know, I have I have two projects stacked in front of it, but it keeps me up at night thinking about it. And I, I guess that's that's another thing. You know, you, Dave, do this all day, every day, over and over and over and over. Do you ever go home and just like, man, I am I'm all done. I'm out. Like, I'm not going to think about cars. I, I got to <laughs> shut it off. Is that ever every day? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't exactly. I don't watch car shows when I get done working. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, You know, the the thing about that is like cars, you know, they're obviously a huge part of my life. But when I'm not working on cars and I want to, you know, I don't do cars for fun. Like I don't go to cars and coffee, Mm -hmm. you know, hardly ever. I don't do. any of that stuff, it's more of like, uh, you know, I'll go to an art show. Uh, I hang out with Robert Williams and his wife a lot. Oh, and we yeah. do a lot of artsy stuff like that. Um, I have one coming up actually uh, in Hollywood next week that I'm really looking forward to. 
this COVID thing has really made it really weird though. Cause I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. It's hard yeah. to travel. So it's been pretty much all cars and I'm, I, I do get a little burned out once in a while. Cause it, you know, it's just one after the other on repeat. It doesn't yeah. really, uh, there isn't really any breaks in between. And that's why every once in a while you'll see me stop and do like a fun little instant gratification project. Like when I painted the mannequin or right. one of the crazy fifties chairs or whatever, that's sort of how I clear my head out so I can get back into doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good strategy. You know, that's something that I, I worry about myself when it's not, when it's two in the morning and I'm not daydreaming about one of the projects that I'm not working on. I start to worry that like the candle has gone out and then, you know, what am I going to do next? But it always comes back, you know? Well, of course. I mean, that's, that's the biggest part of it is just, you got to have the separation or it, it consumes you. You know, there was, 10 years ago, it was just constant, you know, I'd wake up at two in the morning, like you said, and I'd go to work because I had this new idea that had to be done and I wanted to do it before it went away. So Mm -hmm. now it's more of like, keep the notepad there, make a couple notes or draw a picture and go back to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And once you can get away from it, it's a little easier to to refocus, I think, because sometimes if you're too close to it, you're not really seeing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you got to take the step back for sure. Yeah. Well, I was just curious because this is something that, that you don't see, or I haven't seen through social. What's in your garage? What are you building for you? So now I drive my 32 a lot and I have my new truck and I still have my old 59 Chevy, but I just bought, uh, Tom Booth's Torsion T from 1965. Uh, awesome. And uh, he was one of the founders of the Early Times Car Club, and uh, mm-hmm. he and Jake Jacobs built the car. And I found it in a, a barn in Fresno, or not Fresno, in Bakersfield. And it's still, like, I drove it into the trailer. It still <laughs> ran and everything, and it was mostly all there. It's missing the Corvette fuel injection and a few things. But... Uh, that's, that's the one I'm looking forward to restoring for myself. That's awesome. It's yeah. I was going to say that's, that's the little bit of of struggle there is when you get to the end of the trail at the, you know, 16 hour day and this will just wait. (laughs) Well, when I decided to build my 32, so the 32 is actually a pretty rad story. Uh, when I was just a small kid, you know, 10, 11 years old. I was over at my friend Tracy's house after school, like a bunch of kids, you know, we always go to different people, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, her dad was out mowing the grass on a riding lawnmower, her stepdad, Ron, and the garage door was open and I saw what turned out to be a 34, uh, a 32 Plymouth three window, the corner mm-hmm. of it. So I snuck in the garage and I'm looking around and there's a model A sedan in there and a, and a, a little MG. And he comes in and uh, said something like, you know, oh, you like cars, whatever. And of course, yes. And he goes, well, over there in the corner, that's the 32 Ford I drove here from California in 1960. Hmm. So uh, many, 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 many years later, about 15 years ago, he called me and said, uh, David, I want you to have that 32 come and get it. And it was just a body. There was nothing else. Had the fenders thrown inside it. 
with all the original 50s California paint still on it. And uh, I wouldn't take it for free. I gave him a bunch of money for it. But now I'm basically driving the first 32 Ford I ever seen. Thanks to Dave Shutton for being our guest today, and thanks to all of you for listening to Season 1 of What Moves You, a Speedway Motors podcast. Visit the toolbox at speedwaymotors.com for the photos we referenced in today's episode. If you know of an amazing car story or have an idea of something you'd like to hear, email us at podcast at speedwaymotors.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next season with more great guests and incredible car stories.